Okay, today I think we're going to finish Romans 8. Today we'll be talking about uh, being like Jesus and how that is really not what some people think it is. Being like Jesus is sometimes used as an excuse for actually not being like Jesus. So we'll we'll talk about that, the, the, the goodness of what it means to actually be like Jesus. We'll talk about how believers can overcome in terrible situations. How we can actually be overcomers and consider ourselves overcomers in terrible, hard situations. And since I'm going to be talking about overcoming and, and getting through hardship and all this, I'm going to deal with, if we have time, prosperity preaching. And I actually found an article uh, on Benny Hinn, I think it's BennyHinn.com, I'll, I'll tell you when we get there, that um, was so bothersome that I thought I should address it. <laughs> so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it as a case in point of the tactics of prosperity preachers. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, prosperity is nice. We're not against prosperity. But the, you know what I mean. When I say prosperity preachers, we're talking about a move of anti-intellectual, silly, one-sided theology that gets used to manipulate people into giving money to that ministry, usually. That's the typical thing. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. So um, all that while we're doing verse by verse through Romans, we're going to hopefully finish chapter 8 today. So starting in verse 29 of Romans 8. It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Um, Now, we've dealt with the controversial issues about foreknowledge, election, predestination, but it's not just controversy we're interested in. So, like, I feel like I've handled those issues and I I like to say, okay, they're dealt with. Let's let's lock that away and let's move forward. Let's keep going. Um, We... We, we don't mind controversy. I really am not bothered by controversy at all. Um, I'll go ahead and speak out. I've, I've actually had other leaders come up to me and be like, Mike, why are you teaching on that? <laughs> like, why would you even pick that as a topic? And yet that becomes the stuff online that people are the most grateful that I've done because nobody's talking about it. And they appreciate to have a calm and loving yet rational treatment of a subject. Um, they like that. I, I, and so they're like me, in other words. I like that too. I like it too when people are like, can we just talk about stuff? And not act like we're scared of everything, like we're all just like chicken littles, you know, about about every deep theological issue or, or difficult, you know, uh, issue in our culture. Um, but I don't want to stop there. I don't want to just go, let's just talk about controversy and then let's close our Bibles and go on our way. Yeah, we will address the controversy as it comes, but you've got to then say, but there was a point. But there was there was a reason why God was teaching us these things. And it wasn't just so we could say, I'm right, you're wrong. We become arrogant and shallow if we only dip into theology or the Bible for the sake of controversy. And then we kind of close it and move on our way. So let's look at these issues now again. Predestination, but not for the sake of how does it relate to Calvinism, Arminianism, any of that. Let's look at it. Verse 29 it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That, that is, we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. What are we, what's our predestination for? What is the destination? It's to be more like Christ. That I would be more like Jesus. So I think this happens in a couple different ways. Conformed in my nature and conformed in my character. So I want to talk about those two ways in which I'm conformed to be like Christ. 1 John 3, 2, 3, 2, B says this. So funny when you, you know, just casually throw a letter at the end. It just means the end of the verse, right? So 1 John 3, 2, towards the end of the verse, it says, It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That my, my future sight of the revelation, the coming of Christ, there's a time there where I am transformed, and I become like him. Not just in character, but in nature. Like in the very makeup of who I am. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. This this mortal must put on immortality. This corruption must put on incorruption. That there's a, a body that will be changed, will be transformed into a new body that is fit for eternity. And it's like Jesus in some way. Uh, Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21, it's along the same lines. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he's able to subdue all things to himself. 
So I'm going to be changed. Like I'm, I'm actually looking forward to this. This is a pretty exciting thing. I have a lowly body. You have a lowly body, and it's going to be changed and transformed into likeness of Christ. Now, this is not deification. This is not like Mormon teaching about how if you're a good enough person and you and you get you know you get married in the temple and you and you always tithe and you keep the commandments and you fulfill your vows that you can then become a god who then has your own planet and then produces babies with your spouse in heaven and populates this future planet and you start the whole thing all over again except now it's you being worshipped instead of God so you have like Neptune instead of Earth or something like this that's that's not what we're talking about is not deification, but it is glorification. But it's more like this. Jesus, see, he's not just saying, I'm God and I'll make you like me. No, no, he came and he took human form. Human form. He lived, he died, he rose again, and now he has a glorified human body. And you will be in that likeness. The glorified human body of Jesus. That's the thing I'm going to be conformed to. So it, it, it would be, I think, terribly inaccurate to say, as one ancient church quote is um, that God became man that we might become God. That's like, you know, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Like this is, this is, that's weird. Like you, whatever you meant, you shouldn't have said it that way. That, That would be inappropriate. We will be glorified humans, but we will be in the image of Christ in our, in our, um, our nature. Uh, Romans 8, 18 talks about this. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's actually revealed in us, this glory, this coming glory. And that creation's waiting for the revelation of this glory of the, of the, the children of God. And so we are glorified. Now this sometimes kind of hits us and we're like, Whoa, I don't want that. Lord, I don't want that. But it's not something you earn. It is a gift. It is not something that you've worked towards. It is something God has predestined to do in us because of his kindness. So this is something I'm waiting on. This has obviously not happened yet. Right? This is not going on right now. It's a future thing. But there's another sense in which I'm predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus that I'm not waiting on. And that is in character. In the character of who I am. Not just what makes up me physically speaking, but who I am. There's a phrase that I love, love, love. It's follower of Jesus. I really like that phrase. That phrase means more to me all the time. And as I, as I continue to grow in Christ, as I continue to follow Jesus, it means more and more to me all the time. Because it's not just saying that I simply believe, but it's saying that I'm a follower of Jesus. Who am I following Jesus? Who's my pattern? Who's the one leading the way for me? Who's the example that I'm taking after it's Jesus, his teachings and his lifestyle. And Jesus, Jesus was the ultimate example of God's love. And this is something God has predestined us to. He wants us to walk in love the way that Christ walked in love. We are to love each other the way Jesus loves us. The call to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, which is this incredible self-sacrifice love. Some people they, they diminish this. Some people may be coming more from my camp of like the, the, I'm unashamed of the theology and the truths of the scriptures. You know, we, we sometimes can diminish love. As though love is, is, is the word that has been hijacked by the, by the, by the, the religious liberals or something like this. But it's, it's not the case. Like beloved, we are beloved and then we are called to be loving we're beloved and beloving. That's the idea. That's the call that's been given to us. God loved the world. Jesus exampled this love entirely in everything he did. And I think if I could summarize this love, it's a concern for others above yourself. That's, the, that's love. It's so simple. I'm worried more about you than I am about me. My care and my thoughtfulness and concern is for you more than me. I think that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful, powerful thing. I had someone call the church one time. I think I may have shared this story with you guys before, but he called the church one time and he, and he asked, um, hey, you know, I, I was thinking about going to your church, but I wanted to know, is your church a loving church? And I, maybe sometimes I, I'm, I'm too short. Sometimes I just said, yeah, it is. You should come. <laughs> That's all I said. You know, like, yeah, come check it out. 
And he goes, okay, but the thing is, you know, like I've been to churches and they weren't really loving and I want to make sure to go to a church that's really loving. And then I felt like I had some discernment in the situation. And so I, I asked the gentleman, I said, you know, do, do you know that God has actually not so much called us to find people that are loving, but to be people that are loving? That the, the fellowship you decide to attend, the church, that you, the family you put yourself in, your job there is not so much to be receptacle of love, but to be one who's pouring love into others. And that a room full of people that are trying to pour love into others, that is the place you want to be. Not a room full of people that are looking around to see if they're being loved. That's a room full of leeches. And they're waiting for someone who's got some blood to walk in the room. And that person is going to feel drained pretty quick. Pretty quick. Um, so, concern for others over self. This, is, this should be in my character. This should be something I literally strive towards and push myself towards to purposely intent, intently love others, put on that loving attitude, and let this be a major priority of my life, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Um, but I want to offer one qualification. This is, this is where the whole concern about religious liberals comes in, because I'm not too much concerned about the political liberals as much as I am the religious ones. Religious liberals, we're, we're talking about people who would deny the actual authority of God's word, and basically they reinvent Jesus to to fit whatever image they have of themselves on Facebook and Instagram. Um, but this is the qualification. Jesus was not always loving in the way that you might think of loving. It's funny how some people will say, man, you know, Jesus wouldn't really do that. But if you ask them to describe Jesus, they always go to the same story. It's always the woman caught in adultery. Have you noticed this? It's as though the story of the woman caught in adultery is the only story about Jesus we know. And we don't know about him driving the money changers from the temple or calling the Pharisees hypocrites. And then the response goes, oh, but Mike, Jesus only did that to religious people. My thought is, almost every human Jesus ever encountered was religious people. And the stuff he did, he did to religious people, not just to Pharisees. But he says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Well, they weren't all just Pharisees. So there's times where Jesus was not nice at all. But he was always loving. And that's the balance for us. That's the balance to just realize that love is not always niceness. Niceness isn't even love. In fact, niceness often becomes enabling and not loving. So... That's the one qualification. When we actually read the Bible, we see Jesus did not approve of people. He loved them. If he approved of them, he would not have needed to die for them. Because he would just open his arms and go, but I accept you the way you are. That's not exactly the theology of Jesus. That's more the theology of somebody else. So love is one side of the coin. To be conformed to the character of Christ, love, love, love. It's got to, love's got to be chief in my mind, to be self-sacrificial, to be putting others' needs above my own, and to do this every day, all day long. But righteousness is, I think, the other side of that coin, and that's what balances. I shouldn't say balances it out like you have to pull away from love because you don't want to love too much, but rather it, it keeps love pure. Righteousness is the thing that keeps love pure. Love is the thing that keeps righteousness on target. These things go together, love and righteousness. Um, those who diminish love, they don't get it. They don't get following Jesus. And those who diminish righteousness, they don't get it either. Because Jesus was always righteous. Always righteous. And following him means walking in righteousness. Let me read to you Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 11. It says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit in all goodness, righteousness, and truth excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit is in all, and look at the words, goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It's goodness, righteousness, and truth. The fruit of the Spirit's generally character qualities, not supernatural giftings. Those are gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is character qualities. Goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And this is what Jesus did. He exposed and targeted controversial Jewish issues religiously of his day and exposed them with a righteousness and love. He could in one breath condemn the, the, the ungodly acts of those around him and then in the next breath say, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I mean, it just defies the stereotype nowadays where it's either you are approving and loving or you're righteous and condemning. 
And my thought is, well, maybe I could be righteous and loving like Jesus and be conformed to his image and just defy that stereotype. That, that would be a good call for us. Um, some people think this is oppressive or legalistic to expose works of darkness, to call out the, the things going on either in, in a person's life, um, not to try to embarrass them, but to expose the work of darkness that's going on in their life, to open their eyes to it, to be the light that says, look, you got to turn. you got to change, man. You can't live this way. This is unrighteous. I love you too much to let you do this. Some people think that's oppressive or legalistic. I think it's funny. Some people use the word legalistic. I would like to hear them describe the word, define it for me, because there's a biblical definition that's probably completely different than what they're thinking. Um, but it's actually biblical. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should know this. Jesus was holy. Jesus was sinless. And God is the one who says, be holy for I'm holy. He calls us to holiness. And Jesus' mission involved preaching. Do you remember when Jesus, he said the words, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Remember when Jesus said that? No, he was busy preaching the gospel with words. He never went to a city and just walked around and shined niceness. He preached at them. And what was his message? Read the scriptures in all four gospels. The message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. Man, so I want to follow Jesus. So if I go out, I mean, years ago I thought street preachers had something wrong with them maybe because I was raised in a culture that thought street preachers had something wrong with them. And then I started studying and reading the scriptures and I thought, you know what? I can't think of anything biblically wrong with going on the corner and just preaching. I just can't find anything wrong with that. You know, you could do it in a wrong way, but, but the wrong way would be an, an, an ungodly way or unloving way, and not just because you don't approve of everything that's happening in the culture. That's not, that's not ungodly. Now I, I, I more want to like, like, maybe I should do that more. You know, like maybe I should be out there doing this more. And um, although, in, in a sense, this is why we do stuff online, is because this is the street preaching of the day. This is, this is the marketplace of ideas is online. So we're trying to do that. So the mission has to involve preaching. It has to involve going into the world, telling it like it is. But when you have love as the, as the thing undergirding all this, that's what matters. And you'll be misunderstood. That's fine. People misunderstood Jesus. Some people will also understand. And they'll hear you, and they'll hear the sincerity and the love and the truth, and they might come to Christ. So this is our, our destination, to be conformed to the image of his son, conformed to the image of Jesus. Um, good for us to do that, to focus on Jesus. Not the Jesus of culture, but the Jesus of the Bible. And actually, we've been going through Acts on Sunday mornings with the, with the youth ministry. It's exciting to read Acts and just let the apostles preach the way they preach and go, let's learn from this. We finished going through the Gospels. Before that, we went through John. And it was exciting to let John just be John. Let the Gospel be the Gospel. and Let Jesus be. Sometimes he's really gracious and sometimes he just targets an issue. Of course, in love, but unashamed. So it's good stuff. Good things to learn. Go back and relearn Jesus. Um, verse 30, continuing in Romans. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God glorified them. So predestined, called, justified, glorified. I think we know what these words mean. To be predestined is your destiny is set ahead of time by God. He has this plan in place. We've been called, maybe in two senses. One sense, you know, the, the call, come and receive Christ. Everyone hears that call. Everyone is, is given that call. Uh, openly, it's not selective, but when you receive Christ, you have you have a call on your life because you're a child of God. You're you're in Jesus. You know, have the call of God. Um, and then, whom He justified to be justified. I always like the song. It says, "Just as if I'd never done anything wrong." Um, that's me being justified. My 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 sins are washed away. I'm made just. I've become just or righteous uh, by by grace. And then these he also glorified. Now that's interesting. He glorified. There's a um, there's a candy called now and later. This is this is this is the idea of this glorification. It's now and later. I I'm glorified now. There's no reason for that illustration. Um, I'm glorified now because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. So he lets me become. I have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency, the power, maybe of God, not of me. Like I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm empowered by God for my life. I've been given some glory of God upon my life. So I'm, glor I'm glorified. But there's a future glorification that's coming that fits the context of Romans 8. 
right? Romans 8.18, it talks about literally the glory which shall be revealed in us. I mentioned it earlier. The glory that shall be revealed. So this is glorified. There's a now and there's a later sense of glorified. But why are all these past tense? Whom he predestined, he called, he called, he justified, justified, glorified. I think that the scripture sometimes uses past tense to talk about sort of the sureness and the surety of a thing. It's like done deal. It's already done. You ever do this at work? Your boss is like, all right, I need you to you know, count the register and, uh, and then clock out. All right, it's done. It's done, boss. And you haven't done it yet, but you're like telling him like, don't worry, I got it. And this is, this is the implication. God's saying it's a done deal. It's a done deal. Romans 8, you can't read through Romans 8 without feeling a sense of security in your salvation. Without feeling a sense of confidence in the one that began a good work in you that's going to take it to completion. So it's, it's like a done deal. Um, so what's the point? Why, why, what, what am I really getting out of verse 30? He predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. The point is God does it all. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. And he glorified you. Done deal. It's already, it's like it's already done. It's all on God. It's all on God. It is him doing these things. Now, some people, we can very easily get confused because we see salvation is by faith. But now that I'm saved, I start to think I'm maintaining my salvation with works. God knew this would be a problem. And that's why he had the Bible written for us. I mean, this is Galatians deals with this in so much detail. So let me read to you Galatians 3 3. There's a group of people that they knew that they were wicked sinners. They just accepted Christ, received the gospel. Man, they were saved. But then they started thinking they had to do certain things to maintain or keep or or somehow secure their salvation. Galatians 3 3, it said, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You got saved by God, just spiritually renewing you. You were born again of the Spirit. But now you're going to work yourself? Is this, is this you're going to be made perfect? Oh, if I just work harder, if I just do this or that? This doesn't obviously mean sin all you want. Um, people are always worried about that. It's a legitimate thing to be worried about. But if you're sinning all you want and then using grace as an excuse, you are not saved. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. So can I just set that category aside for the rest of us who are just disgusted by the idea of sin all you want? You're disgusted because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you? What we should say is we're kept by the one who saved us. I'm saved by God and I'm kept by God. It's his grace that keeps me. That's That, I think, is the point of it being a done deal. Because um, some move from faith to works and then you start getting really scared and judgmental of others. That wrong kind of judgmental. Like, well, I don't know, my name is Jimmy start I hear weird things sometimes sometimes most of the time no just sometimes and people who can sometimes start to look very cynically at everyone else in the fellowship and they see they're just they're like I see that person they come every single week I see them every week but what are they really doing for God lazy people this church is full of lazy Christians. And I don't know anything about them. And I become judgmental of them. And then one day, I look at myself and I realize how messed up I am. That I can't even reach my own qualifications for real Christians. And then I feel condemned. And this is, this is the, the fate of those who find works providing them security. Their good works provide them a sense of security. Is that they're either judging others or they're judging themselves. It's like they're in one mode or the other. And they kind of bounce back and forth between this, these two different things. If you do come across a believer who seems very judgmental of others, there's a good chance that they're very condemning of themselves privately. And you might actually think of ministering to them along those lines. Just assume it. Just be like, man, they're so critical of others. They're probably dealing with guilt. They don't know how to offer grace to that person because they also don't understand how grace works for them. So you might consider offering them more grace, which seems like the, the, the opposite of what you desire to do when you come across someone like that. But maybe that's what they really mean. Um, verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is God giving us the application. The application is you've been saved and God is empowering you to live this life. You have a restored relationship where you can say, Abba, Father now. The, the, the spiritual life you live in the spirit, this is all in Romans 8 we're talking about. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, there's a glorification that is sure and that is coming. And in the groanings you have, you're being helped by the Holy Spirit. And God is working all things together for good to them who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Like you've got all these truths that have ramped up in Romans 8. And the conclusion is, so if God's for you, who can possibly be against you? What can anyone do to undo all that God has done for you? This is a powerful thing. But this verse is also sometimes totally hijacked. And sometimes people take it and they apply it not to the things in Romans 8. They apply it to whatever they're doing. Just whatever they're doing. Like, I'm going to go run a marathon. Next week, I'm running a marathon. Have you practiced? No, but you know what? If God is for me, who can be against me? Oh, yeah, my baseball team, they're getting ready to go and play. And we're going to pray before the game. And we're like, God, we know we're going to win. Because if you are for us, who can be against us? And we just get dumb about these things. Romans 8 offers you reasons to think that God is for you in this way. But I shouldn't apply this to just meaning like success, victory, winning everything, because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's like this is, this is sort of funneling all of scripture and promises of the Bible through a self-serving, self-glorifying lens instead of the way God has given it to us. So it is a general truth that if, that if, God's, if God is for me, but I mean, have you had a word from the Lord where he's like, your baseball team is my favorite. I will, I will prosper you and there will be many home runs. Is that, is that what he, like your pitcher will strike out the enemy, thus saith the Lord. Like is that, no, God hasn't given that to you. So why would I, why would I, why would I do this? It just gets weird. So this scripture, it doesn't apply well to carnal or selfish thinking. It applies well to um, the promises we've received in Romans 8. If God's for me, working all things together for good, then that means no matter what happens, no matter what you do to try to attack me, how you come against me, I still praise God because he's bringing good out of this for those who are what? In love with him. Called according to his purpose. And my life belongs to him. It's not him who belongs to my life. It's the other way around. So who can be against us? I like what Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Let me break that down, that verse down. The Lord's what? He's my light, my salvation, and he's the strength of my life. He's my light. That means he gives me understanding and he shows me the way. He's my salvation. He saves me, forgives me of my sins, and saves me from the greatest tragedies of life. And he's also the strength of my life because life will not be without struggle. Life will not be without pain. And the Lord will be the one who strengthens me through these things. So why am I afraid? Why would I fear you? Why would I fear you? It's like the worst you could do is kill me. <laughs> and what is that going to cause? I'm going to be in the presence of God. Christians should be at the same time incredibly humble and totally fearless. And it's this beautiful marriage of humility and confidence that, that should be given to us in Christ as we're more and more biblically minded. So uh, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Using this in a biblical way. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Carrying the same line of reasoning going here. Like if God's for us, what do I mean he's for us? Well, he didn't spare his own son. He delivered Jesus up. The mo- who's more valuable than Christ? What thing is more valuable that God could possibly... Can you think, even imagine a greater cost that God could pay for you? Is there a higher cost that's conceivable than Jesus? Well, if God gave you Jesus, delivered him up for us, then he'll freely give us all things. Well, what does it mean, all things? This is another one of those verses that are often taken out of context. And you start to get the name it and claim it crowd, which... Isn't, the, isn't really the meaning of the scripture. What are the all things he's freely giving us? Well, it's the same thing in Romans chapter 8. It's talking about how we are co-inheritors with Christ. We inherit with him the whole universe, the new heaven and new earth. When he comes into his glory, we come into it as well. So in a sense, the name it and claim it crowd is, is accurate, but their timing is off. It's their timing that's wrong. It's not now. Let me read to you Romans 8. Verses 18 through 20. You could even read it to yourself. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be, future tense, revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. This is the, he has already given his son and he will freely give us all things, but we're waiting on this. We're waiting on this. Hebrews 11 talks about this, right? The hall of faith, how these guys lived and died in faith because they wanted a greater resurrection. There was something better. There was a promise that was yet to come and they were waiting on that. And we are as well. We are as well. Now, when you act like this stuff's coming now, it creates all manner of confusion and faking and awkward, embarrassing moments when you're the person in church who isn't really getting the kingdom blessings. And then they tell you, but you have to keep professing it and confessing it. So you just keep it to yourself and you act like it's happening. And then the person next to you thinks you're one of the ones that it works for. And they're the one that's messed up. <laughs> it just keeps propagating the same cycle. But I don't just want to, you know, use scripture to tell you what scripture doesn't say. Here's what it says. You inherit all things. How do I know that God will really be letting us be inheritors of the new universe, the new heaven and new earth? Because he did give us his son. What he's going to give us later is small compared to what he already gave us. If he gave us his son, how much more will he give us all things? How much more will we, we be inheritors of this? So it is coming and we need this hope present in our hearts. Present in our hearts. There was a time in my life where I wanted to like go to heaven and I wanted to be the doorkeeper in the house of God because I somehow thought that was more glorious to just be like the doorkeeper. I just want to be like, I'm a doorkeeper in the house of God, whatever that would be, you know? Um... And as I found out that there were treasures in heaven, rewards for the service we do to Christ on earth, and that there's this inheritance and there's glorification, I was almost like, I don't want that. But here's the thing. That, whether that's real humility or false humility, I'm not sure. But here's the thing. God has promised us these things. And as you get older and you start going through hardships in life, those things start to be more important to you. And the, real, the reality that God is having us go through a temporary, minuscule little moment of suffering for eternal glory. You've got to have that present in your heart so that you can know that you're more than a conqueror. So verse 33, it says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Um, so we have a, an inheritance that's coming, but now it talks about a charge. What's a charge? It's like an accusation. You know, when, when someone goes to court, they bring the charges this person's, you know, their haircut is bad and they wear their pants too low. So, you know, send them to jail. That's the accusation of the charge. Uh, a charge is an accusation that results in condemnation. So the question here is, who will bring a charge against you? And I, I think there's two options. One, somebody else. Or two, you. Like, this is, let's just cut the whole world into, into the categories we really think about. Me and then everybody else. Um, if it's somebody else who comes and brings a charge against you as a believer. Oh, but you this and you this and you this, yet you're really in Christ. You're truly in Christ. What kind of charge can they bring against you? What charge can anyone bring that will stick? But then there's another option, is that you bring a charge against yourself, and I think this happens a lot. And I think the scripture actually talks about this. This self-condemnation, not conviction. Conviction's good. You don't want to hide from it. You want to be open and honest when you've, when you're, when you've failed or fallen in sin. But 1 John 3.20, it says this, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. First John 3.20 There are times where I bring the accusations against myself. And I feel condemned. And I feel assaulted. And then I get reminded of God's grace and reminded of his love. And that's important. What's the response to me being accused or charged against from either others or myself? It's God justifies who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Are you going to tell him he's wrong? Now at this point, someone says, so Mike, what you're saying is I need to forgive myself. What I need is I need to forgive myself. And I'll go, look, I don't know if you heard that on Oprah or like, like Lifetime TV, but this is like, who do you think you are? This is the point. The point of the verse isn't that you have to forgive yourself. It's that you have no right to charge or dismiss charges against yourself. Only God does. 
No one else has a right to charge or dismiss charges against yourself. God is the judge. God says, you know, you're clean. And you go, well, I don't know about that. My thought is, who do you think you are? Well, I just have to forgive myself. You, who do you think you are? You're either forgiven in Christ, in which case you're deluded when you think that there's a charge against you that's real, or you're not forgiven in Christ, in which case you're deluded if you think you can forgive yourself and have it do anything. People who really honestly think, I need to forgive myself, I feel like they're moving into the position of God over their own lives, as if they can dictate forgiveness. What you need to do is go to Jesus and trust in his grace. He's the one that says, all judgment's been given to me. All judgment, it's mine. And then he takes himself to the cross, dies for our sins. We believe in him. We're washed and clean. So my guilt or my innocence is not dictated by me. Whoever condemns me, be it you or me, I literally have no right. God has the final word. That encourages my heart. Because then I can, then I can say with 1 John 3.20, you know, my heart really is condemning me. But you know what? God is greater than my heart. And he knew what knucklehead I was. <laughs> and he still saved me. So... I'm just, I'm just wrong, which is a really nice thing to admit. Um, especially, you know, when you're married. It's a good thing to say. Um, so continuing verse 34. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You think you have to forgive yourself? Here's Jesus. He died for you. He rose again. He's at the right hand of God interceding for you. And you think you have to forgive you. No, you just have to recognize your, the forgiveness you've been given. You can condemn you all day long. It just doesn't work. That's nice. My condemnation doesn't work. It doesn't work on others. It doesn't work on me. That's a nice thing to know. I like this because it's like, it's like math. You know, it's like two plus two equals four. I could be like, I feel really condemned, and I'm like, yeah, but Jesus plus me equals forgiven, so I'm just wrong. But I still feel it. But at least I'm wrong. You know, like it, I can still feel it while being wrong, and that comforts my heart somewhat. I think facts can help your feelings sometimes. I and mean, this is one of those times. This is why Romans 8.1 starts off with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ? Yes. Then there's no condemnation. But I think, oh, but that's okay, because you're wrong. Verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. These words, uh, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Tribulation is a word just used for general hardship. Anything difficult is tribulation. It really is a big umbrella word for any kind of difficulty you go through in life. Distress is an interesting word in the Greek. The, the, the word distress, actually the pieces of it mean a narrow place. A narrow place. Like, like you're being squeezed. You're being pressed upon. You feel like your life's squishing in, in on you. That's the idea of distress. Or nowadays we would just call it stress. That's the common word we use. So it's pressure on your life. Persecution... That's harm for Christ. Because you're following Jesus, harm comes upon you. Famine or nakedness, this has to do with poverty. This has to do with a lack of, of basic life necessities. Peril is the idea of danger. Uh, danger is the idea of what might happen, what could happen. We, we tend to worry about those things. Um, then there's finally the sword. The sword is talking about death. He's talking about death. So whether it's general hardship, stress I'm under, uh, persecution, I'm being attacked for Christ, basic financial issues of like po uh, poverty, famine and nakedness, um, or peril, the things I'm worried might come, that kind of danger, what could happen, what might happen, or if it's even death, even being murdered for Christ, yet in all this stuff, I'm more than a conqueror. I'm more than a conqueror even if I do experience all this. That's the key in Romans 8. It's though I do go through these things, I'm more than a conqueror. Not the opposite prosperity gospel garbage. You won't go through this. It won't happen. And then it just restores the fear you have of all those things. Because you're just, it won't happen. It won't happen. It won't happen. How about this? What if it does happen? Are you still a conqueror in Christ? Are you still overcoming? Some people, they doubt God's love because they're going through hard times. I've been experiencing this hard time. I've been experiencing it and experiencing it. It won't go away and I just can't stand it. 
and it's starting to make me feel like God doesn't love me. But I just want to say this. The Bible never gave you an expectation this wouldn't happen. You gave yourself that expectation. The scripture is telling you how to conquer through it, not how to avoid it. This is the continual statements of scripture. I'm more than a conqueror through my pains, in my pains, because through forgiveness or deliverance into a better future, I'm going to make it out of this on the other side. I'm going to be okay. That's a powerful truth. Now, what do I have to do to be this conqueror? This is the beautiful thing. All you have to do is wait. That's it. That's all you got to do. Whether it's the, the, the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. You just wait. You wait on the Lord. But I've been waiting. Yes, well, sometimes we're like children. You know, my niece one time, this is the best picture of patience that I can think of. One time, it was Christmas, and she had a gift, and she wanted me to put this gift together for her, assemble it so she could play with it. And she hands it to me, and it has a thousand zip ties all over it, you know. So I start, like, cutting away at the zip ties, because that's how things are nowadays. So I'm cutting the zip ties, and she, I said, she comes over, she goes, is it ready yet, Uncle Mike? And I was like, no, it's not, it's, it's not ready. It's not ready yet, Caitlin. You just have to wait a minute. And I said, just be patient. She goes, okay. She walks around the living room, one circle, just walks around the room, and she comes back, is it ready yet? And I said, I said, no. And she goes, being patient is hard. And then she walks away and just does another trip around the circle. Then she took it from me and tried to do it herself. And that didn't work either. Um, that, that's me though sometimes. Except my trip around the circle is like, it's been 10 years already. Shouldn't this be better now? It's been 20 years already. It's been a lifetime already. And maybe you just need to wait until we grow into our inheritance. Maybe you're going through a struggle where it won't get better until it gets completely resolved in the resurrection. Maybe you won't see this, you know, the silver lining of this cloud until you see it in hindsight from glory. But that is exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. He's talking about being more than a conqueror in those things. All you have to do is wait. Um, now I want to talk for a second about the prosperity preachers and how they use these, these scriptures. Because the, you, you can see them. You can even read them and you can think, like, I could see where they would grab this verse out of context. I would see where they grab this one. But if prosperity was the expectation for Christians, why are we so consistently prepared for suffering in scriptures? Why am I constantly prepared for pain in the New Testament if glory in this life was the expectation? Israel nationally had promises of prosperity, and this is, where, this is where the prosperity preachers get off. Here's what they do. They quote in the Old Testament, they quote promises to Israel about how they would have national prosperity if they had national obedience. They quote it out of context. Then they act like it's God's promise for you. Then they switch obedience for giving, and they ask you to give them money. Let me give you an example. Um, on Benny Hinn's website, BennyHinn.org, under a, an article that is up right now, it's up today, it's, it's called God's Promises of Prosperity for You. I was not looking for this article, but I, I stumbled and fumbled upon it while I was looking for something else. Um, God's Promises of Prosperity for You. And the article has five steps it takes you through in this short article. I'm going to walk you through these steps and I want you to see if you can figure out what is messed up about this stuff. And if you, when, you, when you see the implications of it, you'll see why I think it's worth talking about. Because this is totally messed up, in my opinion. Um, first, it's, it says God's, you know, God has prosperity for you. And it talks about Old Testament people who were wealthy. There's a list of them. Adam was wealthy, according to BennyHinn.org, because Adam lived in the Garden of Eden. Ah, but the same text talks about how there's these hills nearby where there was gold. So Adam must have obviously been very wealthy. Talks about Isaac and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. He was poverty, but eventually, you know, he got raised up and all this stuff. And, and all these people, every single one of them is from the Old Testament, interestingly enough. Can't find one wealthy, godly person in the New Testament. As far as the, the apostles go or any, any leader in the church, it's really difficult to find. I think Lydia was a seller of purple. She seemed to have some financial prosperity. I think it's the only one I can think of who had that sort of thing going on. But it's, so it's all Old Testament individuals. They ignore the ones that weren't wealthy. He just targets the ones that were wealthy. So that's step one. 
Step one creates an expectation of godly people being wealthy. Step two is this in the article. That God's will for you is to be financially prosperous. And now they misuse and twist scriptures out of context where they're like promises to Israel about how God will bring you into the land flowing with milk and honey and all this stuff. That's for Israel. There's an application to us, sure, but it was directly to Israel. So misuse of scripture. Step three, and I quote from the article. Here is the key. God, all God's prosperous people recorded in the Bible were obedient in giving. All were givers. Where do you think this is going next? After going on and on about how they were obedient in giving, it doesn't talk about a righteous life or anything else like that, or obedience to the law, which is actually the requirement for Israel's prosperity. Uh, no, it talks about giving. Then step four, it says this. September 1st is our day of prayer for debt cancellation. It's coming, guys. September 1st, mark your calendars. There's a special moment where your debts can be canceled as we pray for it. And all you need to do is scroll down about three inches further on, this, on the article and you finish at home where they wanted you to be. There's a donate button. Right there at the bottom of the article, there's the donate button. This entire article has been to manipulate you into desiring wealth, thinking godliness is a means of gain, and then thinking that by giving them money, you will get more money. It's totally ungodly, and people who fall for it deserve it. People who fall for it deserve it. Because I think that someone who's in love with Jesus just naturally sees something's wrong with this. Jesus didn't say, in this world you will have prosperity. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. Jesus was preparing the church for hardship, not wealth. This is just the truth. The New Testament indicates that there are some rich believers and some poor believers, and that there's a danger in both of those. 1 Timothy 6, I'd like to read to you from the actual Bible. 1 Timothy 6, verses 5 through 10. It says that there were uh, there's these false teachers, and they'll have useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, financial gain. That godliness gets you financial gain. That's the false teaching. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Not financial gain. No, no, it's great gain, real gain. Just being content. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. What, what, what do you mean, Paul? What's the promise of prosperity? Just food and clothing? And you're content? What about, the, what about the new car and the jet? Doesn't your ministry need a jet? Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, the desire to be rich is the problem. It's not just being rich, but the desire to be rich. If that's, if that's in your heart, I just want to be rich so bad. That's an ungodly desire. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. To even... Feed, as Benny Hinn's ministry is doing, feed the desire to be rich in people. They're pushing them towards these things that drown men in destruction and perdition. Leads them into foolish and harmful lusts. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Who do you think this might be talking about? Who today does this, does this apply to? If I go to a church and they pass, pass the plate three times, that's when I leave. If I go to a ministry and they're all about giving, if they start telling me about seeds of faith and about how I have to donate, to, then, then I'm not. In fact, I'm assuming that they're doing this for their you know, 12-bedroom mansion. There are wonderful ministries worth supporting. And it is good to, to give. It, good, giving is good. But not giving to get. That's, that's bad. Right? That's bad. The scripture doesn't say, give so you'll get. It says, work hard so you'll have extra money so you can give. Well, if I had to work hard to have extra money to give, then, then that means that this giving is not getting me money back, is it? No, because biblically giving is actually giving, meaning whatever I give, I have less of that. That's kind of, you know, how physics works. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so as Christians, our hope is not so petty as to be smothered by temporary suffering. Our hope goes far beyond that. And the expectation of, of financial wealth in this life is a petty expectation that drowns men in wastefulness and foolish lusts. We are more than conquerors 
even in poverty, even in famine or nakedness or peril or sword or distress or persecutions or tribulation or any of those things. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter, he says, but more than conquerors because none of this affects my relationship with Jesus. And that's how it ends in verses 38 and 39. Romans 8 ends, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is it that nothing that I'm going through can do? It cannot separate me from God's love that's in Christ. If I'm in Christ, I am secure in Christ. And nothing that happens next, not cancer, not poverty, not, the, not death, not persecutions, not hardships, not the slow, difficult anguish of long-lasting trials. None of these things separates me from God's love. None of these things. God consistently prepares us for suffering. So I take a cue from this. You, in this world, you will have tribulation. I will too. Prepare your heart for it. Don't wait for it to come. And then hope that you'll have the strength. Prepare your heart for it now. Place your hope in the resurrection. Place your hope in heaven. Place your hope in the transformation of your body. Place your hope in the strength God gives you. You know, look towards the Holy Spirit who helps you in your groanings, which you will groan. Place your hope in him who works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. But we really, you should go home and reread Romans 8 and reread it again and have it like on a regular reading schedule for yourself. One, one pastor said, you know, it should be so that when you, your Bible drops to the ground, it just flops open to Romans 8, just right there. Um, this is because I want to actually honestly have this mentality, not in some high ivory tower preacher sense, but in a simple, calm, peaceful truth in my heart. I am more than a conqueror in the suffering I'm going through, in the hardship, in the stress, in the difficulty, in the pain, because nothing separates me from the love of God. Nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the fact um, that you are using all things to, to, to work towards good. Good. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us be ready for suffering that is definitely going to come, that we'd be prepared for pain by having our hearts secure in you and in your love, by setting our, our, our sights on contentment on earth and on glory in heaven. Lord, just get us right-minded about these things. Help us, Lord, to go through this world with, with our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Lord, we have a joy that is set before us, in front of us, beyond where we're at now. And let us, let us remember that. Let us remember that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We will pray.